Audio presents the first survivors of Alzheimer's. How patients recovered life and hope in their own words by Dale E. Bredesen, MD. Read for you by Mark Cashman and Kimberly Farr. This book is dedicated to Deborah, Kristen, Julie, Marcy, Sally, Edward, and Frank. Your courage, diligence, and open-mindedness have paved the way for millions more survivors like you. Thank you on behalf of all of us. Introduction. Lost in translation. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. African proverb. Imagine being told that you have Alzheimer's disease. Because this is such a common disease, there is a very good chance that this will happen to someone you love or someone I love. Now, imagine that instead of being told there is no hope, you are told that this is readily treatable and that you can expect to get your normal cognition back. What's more, your children may be assured that they, their children, and your family's subsequent generations can avoid Alzheimer's disease. This reversal of fortune is life-changing, with reverberations through the generations ad infinitum. This was the goal in translating the research that my colleagues and I performed over 30 years into a therapeutic approach. Do you remember the first time you heard that an untreatable illness had finally become treatable? Down through history, we humans have conquered one disease after another, often through biochemical research, sometimes through anecdotes from tribal medicine, and other times through sheer dumb luck. Regardless of the method, though, the result with each vanquished disease initially feels miraculous. Suddenly, the death sentences are lifted from thousands or even millions of people, restoring hope and a future for each. These events represent one of the most rewarding aspects of what it means to be human, and they never cease to inspire me. Najiv was a teenage boy in the 1940s, living in a village in India, when he developed a fever and a headache and lapsed into unconsciousness. He was taken by bullock cart from his village to the city, where the doctor diagnosed bacterial meningitis. At the time, this was typically a rapidly fatal illness. On this occasion, however, the doctor told Najib's parents, until last week, there would have been nothing I could do to save your son, but a new drug has just arrived from England. It is called penicillin. Instead of dying then, Najib made a full recovery, and this is of more than passing interest to all of us. Najib's son is one of the most gifted biomedical researchers I have ever met, and his research may offer the best hope for an effective antiviral treatment, not just for the COVID-19 of the current pandemic, but also for any subsequent coronavirus pandemics. A brilliant advance with global life-saving ramifications. Whether it is Edward Jenner's development of the first vaccine, it has been pointed out that Jenner is responsible for saving more lives than any other human in history, 
or Frederick Banting and Charles Best's discovery of insulin, thus saving millions with diabetes, or David Ho's development of triple therapy to treat HIV effectively. Each of these pioneers conjured hope from hopelessness. Each sent a ripple through the reality we live with day to day, creating endless possibilities that did not hitherto exist and altering the world's future irrevocably. The seven survivors you'll hear about here, in their own words, are pioneers as well. You'll hear from Kristen, the very first person who adopted our protocol, patient zero, who had watched her mother sink into dementia and then was told by her own physician that she was on her way to suffering the same fate without hope for treatment. How would each of us feel to receive such news from our physician? You'll also hear from Deborah, who suffered as her beloved father and grandmother were both lost to Alzheimer's, and then was horrified as she developed the same symptoms they had manifested, wondering what lay in store for her children. And from Edward, who was told to close his businesses and get his affairs in order. And Marcy, who piled up dozens of parking tickets because she could never remember to feed the parking meters. And Sally, a nurse educator who taught her students that medicine had no effective treatment to offer Alzheimer's patients, then developed it herself and failed a drug trial. And Frank, who had plans to write a book chronicling his own descent into dementia. And finally from Julie, who asked an expert neurologist if he could simply help her to avoid further decline and was told, good luck with that. The thoughts, concerns, emotions, and ultimate triumphs these survivors experienced are described with a depth of feeling that only those who lived them could express. All of these pioneers are still on the trail. They survived terminal PET scans, MRI scans, family histories, and the prognostications of their physicians, thanks to their own inquisitiveness and industry to find a new solution, their courage to address the underlying drivers of their cognitive decline, and their determination to stick with a novel protocol. Thanks to these first survivors, the way is now clear for the millions more in need for both prevention and reversal of cognitive decline. These pioneers are catalyzing a paradigm shift in the way we think about, evaluate, prevent, and treat Alzheimer's disease and the pre-Alzheimer's conditions, MCI, mild cognitive impairment, and SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. But why did it take so long? Alzheimer's disease was first described way back in 1906, yet the first survivors did not begin treatment until 2012 over a century later. Why so long? The fundamental difference between the way people were treated from 1906 until 2012, and unfortunately the way most are still treated unsuccessfully today, and the therapeutics used for all of the survivors is an obvious one. With all previous approaches, patients were given a Procrustean prescription for a single drug, such as Aricept that has nothing to do with what is actually causing the cognitive decline. In contrast, each of the survivors was evaluated for the various factors that were causing the decline itself. Then those contributors were targeted 
with the personalized precision medicine protocol we dubbed RECODE for reversal of cognitive decline. Some had undiagnosed infections. Marcy, for example, as you'll see from her story, had an undiagnosed infection from a tick bite, a relatively common one called ehrlichiosis. And treating that, along with her multiple other contributors, was important for best outcome. Sally, on the other hand, had exposure to mycotoxins, toxins produced by some molds, and removing her exposure was critical to her success. Each of the survivors you'll hear from had a different set of contributors, so that the optimal protocol for each survivor was different. The notion that a complex chronic illness such as Alzheimer's disease should not be treated blindly, but instead should be treated by addressing the underlying drivers may seem obvious. Attempting to treat Alzheimer's blindly is like trying to land a space capsule on the moon by pointing it in a random direction and crossing your fingers. Yet, that is exactly the standard of care at many Alzheimer's centers throughout the world. Why? The answer lies in the African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That is wonderful advice in many cases. But what happens when you do go together, and you do indeed go very far, but it is in the wrong direction? Now, being together has borne you much farther from your goal than you were when you started, and is taking you farther and farther off course. But what amplifies this problem is that the group you are with keeps trying to convince itself that it is going in the right direction, despite all evidence to the contrary. Furthermore, the members of the group have all tied their livelihoods to this misdirection, with major fundraising, drug development, pharmaceutical fortunes, career-making publications, biotech startups, grant approval power, self-congratulatory ceremonies, and on and on. Now, it is virtually impossible to change course. What began idealistically as science and medicine has morphed into politics. And in politics, one of the least potent weapons is truth. end of Alzheimer's, the first program to prevent and reverse cognitive decline, by Dale E. Bredesen, M.D., read for you by Mark Cashman. This book is dedicated to my wife, Dr. Aida Lachine Bredesen, a superb and caring physician who introduced me to the world of functional and integrative medicine, and who has taught me more than anyone about this critical field, and to our two beloved daughters, Tara and Tess. Part 1. The Alzheimer's Solution Chapter 1. Disrupting Dementia You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model 
Obsolete. R. Buckminster Fuller. It is impossible to escape the drumbeat of grim news about Alzheimer's disease. That it is incurable and largely untreatable. That there is no reliable way to prevent it. And that the disease has for decades beaten the world's best neuroscientists. Despite the billions and billions of dollars spent by government agencies, pharmaceutical companies, and biotechnology wizards to invent and test drugs for Alzheimer's, 99.6% of what we have come up with have been abysmal failures, not even making it out of the testing phase. And if you think there is hope in the 0.4% of discoveries that have reached the market, after all, we need only one Alzheimer's drug if it's effective, right? Think again. As the Alzheimer's Association puts it in a bleak reality check, a genuinely new Alzheimer's drug has not been approved since 2003, and the currently approved Alzheimer's medications are ineffective in stopping or slowing the course of the disease. Although the four available Alzheimer's drugs may help lessen symptoms such as memory loss and confusion, they do so only for a limited time. Maybe you're racking your memory to recall when you last read about the Food and Drug Administration approving a new Alzheimer's drug. Don't worry if you can't. Of 244 experimental Alzheimer's drugs tested from 2000 to 2010, exactly one, memantine, was approved in 2003. And as I'll explain, its effects are modest at best. As I said, grim. No wonder a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is the last thing anyone wants to hear. One man whose wife was in the midst of the long goodbye of Alzheimer's shook his head, bereft, and said, We are told repeatedly that drugs are being developed that will slow the decline. But why would anyone do that? I can tell you, living with this every day, that is the last thing you would want. Alzheimer's disease has become part of the zeitgeist. In news articles and blogs and podcasts, on the radio and television, and in films, both documentary and fictional, we read and hear story after story about Alzheimer's disease. Sadly, all and tragically, we fear Alzheimer's as we fear no other disease. There are at least two reasons for that. First, it is the only one, let me repeat that, the only one, of the nation's ten most common causes of death for which there is no effective treatment. And by effective, I'm setting the bar pretty low. If we had a drug or other intervention that made people with Alzheimer's disease even a little better, never mind curing the disease, I'd sing its praises to the rooftops. So would everyone who has a loved one with Alzheimer's, everyone at risk for Alzheimer's, and of course, everyone who has already developed Alzheimer's. But no such drug exists. We don't even have a treatment to keep people with subjective cognitive impairment or mild cognitive impairment, two conditions that often precede Alzheimer's disease, from going on to develop full-blown Alzheimer's. Incredibly, given the astounding progress in other areas of medicine over the last 20 years, think cancer or HIV-AIDS or cystic fibrosis, or cardiovascular disease. As I write this, in 2017, not only is there no cure for Alzheimer's disease, there is not even anything that reliably prevents or slows Alzheimer's disease.
You know how critics make fun of TV afternoon specials and Lifetime movies about angelic children or saintly mothers and fathers who bravely battled cancer and with the aid of the latest miracle drug are restored to perfect health before the final credits roll? Schmaltzy, sure. We in the Alzheimer's field would happily settle for schmaltzy if it were even remotely plausible to depict a happy ending to this disease. The second reason Alzheimer's disease inspires such dread is because it's not only fatal. Lots of diseases are fatal. As the old joke has it, life is fatal. Alzheimer's is worse than fatal. For years, and sometimes decades before it opens the door to the grim reaper, Alzheimer's disease robs its victims of their very humanity and terrorizes their families. Their memories, their capacity for thought, their ability to live full and independent lives, all gone in a grim and unrelenting descent into a mental abyss where they no longer know their loved ones, their past, the world, or themselves. The linguistics professor, who is the heartbreaking protagonist of the 2014 movie Still Alice, carries a DNA mutation that causes Alzheimer's disease to develop by middle age, discovered in 1995. You probably read about the great strides that cancer biologists have made by discovering genes associated with tumors, crafting drugs based on them. With Alzheimer's disease, that 1995 discovery has not led to the development of a single Alzheimer's drug. This awful disease stands out for one additional reason. The last 50 years have brought triumph after triumph in molecular biology and neuroscience. Biologists have untangled the immensely complex pathways that lead to cancer and have figured out how to block many of them. We have mapped out the chemical and electrical processes in the brain that underlie thoughts and feelings developing effective, if imperfect, drugs for depression and schizophrenia, for anxiety and bipolar disorder. Sure, there's a lot left to be learned and a lot of improvement needed for the compounds in our pharmacopias. But in virtually every other disease, there's a strong sense that research is on the right track, that the basics are understood, that although nature will keep throwing curveballs at us, she has revealed to us the fundamental rules of the game. Not so with Alzheimer's. In this disease, it's as if nature handed us a rule book written in disappearing ink and edited by evil gremlins who rewrite entire sections when our backs are turned. What I mean is this. Seemingly rock-solid evidence from lab rodents suggested that Alzheimer's disease is caused by the accumulation in the brain of sticky synapse-destroying plaques made of a piece of a protein called amyloid beta. Those lab studies indicated that amyloid beta is formed in the brain by a series of steps, and that either intervening in those steps or destroying amyloid beta plaques would be an effective way to treat and even prevent Alzheimer's disease. For simplicity, I'll henceforth refer to amyloid beta as simply amyloid. Since the 1980s, most neurobiologists have treated this basic idea, called the amyloid hypothesis, as dogma. It has won its developers multi-million dollar prizes, countless accolades, and prestigious academic positions. 
It has had a huge influence on which Alzheimer's papers get published in top medical journals. Hint, preference goes to those that toe the amyloid line. And what studies get funded by the U.S. National Institutes of Health, the nation's chief source of support for biomedical research. Ditto. But here's the thing. When drug companies tested compounds that are based on any piece of the amyloid hypothesis, the results have ranged from frustrating to bewildering. In clinical trials, human brains did not respond to these compounds the way the rulebook said they should. It would be one thing if the compounds failed to do what they were designed to do. That wasn't what happened. In many cases, the compounds usually antibodies that bind to amyloid in an attempt to remove it, did a great job at removing amyloid plaques. Or if the compound was designed to block the enzyme needed to produce amyloid, it did a great job at that. The experimental compounds did precisely what their inventors intended, following the amyloid rulebook. But patients either got no better or, incredibly, got worse. What keeps emerging from these clinical trials, which, by the way, often cost upward of $50 million each, is exactly the opposite of what all the test tube research based on the amyloid hypothesis and all the mouse models of the amyloid hypothesis and all the theories of the amyloid hypothesis predicted. Targeting amyloid was supposed to be the golden ticket to curing Alzheimer's.
I know. 